This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 189. Greetings, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and share my progress along the writer's journey. So let's get right to it. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 47 in my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Catane has been on the trail of the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre. This murderous apocalypse cult has been operating in the shadows of Metamore society for centuries, working toward the day when they can release their imprisoned deity, a being known as the Shackled God. The Brotherhood believes that their salvation lies in a person called the Vessel, a mortal with an exceptional talent for storing and channeling both mana and the divine substance called essence. If the cult can complete the proper rituals, the vessel will be filled with a measure of the shackled god's power. This dark messiah will then lead the Brotherhood in the work necessary to free the shackled god completely, at which point the world itself will be remade, perfected according to the god's design. The Brotherhood has found many potential vessels over the centuries, but they have never succeeded in imbuing one of them with their god's power. This is mostly because of the efforts of one skunk morph, an immortal wizard named Murakir Kunas. A survivor of the Age of Heroes, Murakir carries a portion of essence given to him by the goddess Artela. Unfortunately, a botched ritual centuries ago led to Murakir's power being entangled with that of the Shackled God. Murakir has spent most of the past thousand years in a state of suspended animation, carefully guarded by his allies in the Metamorian government. Whenever he wakes from this hibernation, it means that the Shackled God is stirring, exerting his influence in the world. Murakir tracks down the cult, finds out what they're up to, recruits mortal allies to help him, and foils the cult's plans, by whatever means necessary. The last time he did this was just 27 years ago, when he worked with Joe Montgomery and Kate's biological father, Jacob Valenti, to stop a string of murder kidnappings called the Midnight Snatcher Killings. With his work completed, the shackled god's connection to the world weakened, and Murakir went back to sleep. Now Murakir is active again, and he has chosen Kate as his latest pawn. He first appeared to Kate in her dreams, when the shackled god tried to open up a connection to her. He has since visited her twice in person, always full of dark, vague warnings, but never willing to speak plainly where they might be overheard. Kate has spoken to both Janus Starson and Captain Montgomery about this, who told her how the skunk morph operates, and what to expect from him. He's a useful ally, but a dangerous one, Montgomery said. He's been fighting this cult for a long time, and he has his own ideas about how it should be done. 
Don't let him run roughshod over you. Now, Kate and her team have finally tracked the Brotherhood to one of their bases of operations, thanks to Callie's missing boyfriend, Will Karenson. The Brotherhood kidnapped Will in order to stop his research into the cult's history, imprisoning him in a network of tunnels on the Lower West Side. Kate, Morgan, John, and Lizzie tracked Will down with a location spell, entered the tunnels through an abandoned water treatment plant, and broke into Will's holding cell, where they discovered that he had been critically injured by the cult's abuse. Morgan fed Will some of her vampire blood, which healed his injuries and revived him, but when Will attempted to leave his cell, it triggered a summoning trap. Will, Morgan, Kate, and John were caught inside the cell by an arcane force field, while a portal opened between the cell and a particularly nasty corner of the Dreamlands. A hungry Daedra immediately forced its way inside, intent on devouring our heroes. Morgan and John immediately engaged the monster in combat, while Lizzie ran to get help. Kate tried to fight too, but the sound of gunfire triggered a crippling series of flashbacks, taking her back to the parking garage where she had killed the thrall at the end of Things Unseen. She crumpled to the floor, unable to shoot, or even to see what was happening around her. With every gunshot, an accusation echoed through her mind. Murderer. Murderer. John noticed that Kate was incapacitated, and quickly realized that more Daedra were about to cross through the portal. In desperation, he used the portal himself and crossed over into the Dreamlands, where he encountered a pack of six additional Daedra. Outnumbered, John stabbed the ground with a cold-forged iron hunting knife, hoping this would draw the attention of the local fae. This made for a much bigger distraction than he had anticipated, as the poisonous iron immediately began melting the rocks into lava. A group of celestial devas quickly arrived to attack the Daedra, and John retreated back through the portal. No sooner had John made it back into the real world when a hand as hard as stone seized him and slammed him against the wall. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 47 John didn't see the thing that grabbed him. One moment he was sprawled on the floor of the cell, trying to get his bearings. The next moment, the cold and stony grip had enveloped him, crushing him slowly against the wall. It covered his head, his throat, and his chest, and it seemed to be applying equal force to all three areas— even gasping for breath was impossible. What in the ninth hell? he thought, even more confused than he was frightened. The teacher wasn't this big. Dimly, through the muffling grip of whatever was holding him, John heard Morgan shouting at someone. Another voice answered, a male one that John didn't recognize. This one was calm, cold, and steady. John couldn't quite make out what either of them were saying. Morgan snarled something else. There was a tense, terrifying silence of several seconds, or possibly several years from John's point of view, and then the grip let go of him. He fell to the ground, gasping, 
his heart pounding in his ears as it worked to send oxygen back to his brain. Eventually, the blackness cleared from his vision, and he looked up. An enormous stone hand rose out of the ground less than two meters in front of him. It loomed over him, fingers twitching, as if it were itching for an excuse to choke the life from him. The hand was covered with black blood, and behind it John could see the reason why. The Daedra lay in a crumpled, bloody heap, like a squashed mosquito. More of the blood stained the stones of the cell in about a three-meter radius. John, John, are you all right? Morgan came to his side in an eye blink and helped him to his feet. Her own fearsome strength came as a comfort as it held him steady. John coughed. <coughs> I'll live. Where's Kate? She was having an attack of some kind. We know, Morgan said gently. She's safe. She gestured at the corner of the cell, where Kate sat huddled with her knees against her chest. Lizzie sat beside her, quietly holding her hand, her long tail flicking up and down in little anxious twitches. John frowned. Lizzie's here? How long was I gone? About twenty minutes, Morgan said. John winced. Well, that would explain why the Daedra had seemed to move in slow motion when they were pushing through the portal. Time in that section of the Dreamlands was flowing more slowly than it was here. What did I miss? Mostly just him. Morgan gestured at the space behind the stone hand, where a short little skunk morph stood watching them with one dark, unblinking eye. The other eye was covered by a leather patch with three embedded gemstones, which glowed with sullen yellow light. The man was dressed like a beggar, his clothes stained and torn, but there was no mistaking the power coming off of him. He held a large medallion in his left hand, a focusing implement for an earth mage, while his right hand was posed in exactly the same position as the stone hand in front of him. He says his name is Murakir, Morgan said, her voice dark with suspicion. Apparently he's been spying on Kate for days. Is that so? John looked up at the theriomorph, eyebrows raised. Then I guess you'd know all about her boyfriend, the Incubus, huh? Boyfriend? John wondered at his own choice of words. Oh, John, you fool, you're doing it again. The corners of the skunk's muzzle turned up, in a poor imitation of a smile. Oh, yes, Daedra, I've seen you. John spread his hands wide. Then why the fuck are you attacking me if you're here to help? I am here to help Catherine. His lips parted, revealing rows of sharp white teeth. I never said anything about helping Daedra. Or vampires. Morgan bared her own fangs at the mage. Now that John had gotten more of his wits about him, he recognized the divine energy coursing through the man's aura. This Murakir was a chosen servant of Queen Artela, the mistress of the wild, and the sworn enemy of Talia, the vampire queen. No wonder he and Morgan don't like each other. John let out a frustrated sigh. Well, war makes for strange bedfellows. Can I assume you want this cult destroyed at least as badly as we do? Murakir's eyes glittered, and his expression abruptly grew serious. 
More than you can possibly know. Great. John took a deep breath and stood up straight, recovering whatever dignity he could. Then why don't you keep watching that portal while I check on Kate? There are a bunch of nasty things on the other side that you don't want coming through here. The mage glowered, but his free hand, and the giant stone mimic he had conjured, made a slight dismissive gesture, beckoning John and Morgan to get out of the way of the portal. Together, they went to kneel beside Kate. The detective's eyes were open, and she was breathing steadily and evenly. She did not look at John or Morgan as they approached, but kept staring at a spot on the ground in front of her. Her gun lay beside her. John saw no spent brass anywhere nearby. Hey, John said, his voice low. Are you hurt? Kate shook her head fractionally, but said nothing. Morgan turned to Lizzie. Elizabeth, dear, why don't you look in on Will and Callie? Elizabeth's eyes flicked from Morgan to John to Kate and back to Morgan. Then she bowed her head in acquiescence and rose silently to her feet. She left the cell. John noticed the door had been ripped entirely off its hinges and headed back up the hallway out of sight. Morgan slid into the spot Elizabeth had vacated wrapping her arm around Kate's shoulders. John sat in front of her, resting a hand on Kate's knee. It was a long time before Kate spoke. I fucked up, she said, her voice sounding hollow. I couldn't do it. I couldn't shoot. She shook her head slightly. Every time you fired, I was back in the garage, watching that woman die, over and over and over again. Oh, Kate. Morgan held her more tightly, resting her head on Kate's shoulder. Kate closed her eyes and shuddered, as if she were reliving the memory again right now. Maybe she is, John thought. The fuck is wrong with me? Kate whispered. I couldn't even breathe. I thought I was dying. John shot Morgan an incredulous look. After all this, she still doesn't know? Morgan winced. She held Kate a little tighter, while using her free hand to take Kate's and squeeze it. Kate, darling, that was a panic attack. Kate looked at her sharply. As she saw the gentle expression on Morgan's face, though, her anger dissolved into confusion. What, literally? That's what a panic attack is? Pretty much textbook, John agreed. Kate looked mystified. But why? Why now? That's a question for you and your therapist to sort out, I'm afraid. That seemed to hit Kate like a punch to the gut. She doubled over, covering her face with her hands. Fuck. The word came out of her in a groan. Then, faster. Fuck. Fuck, 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 I do not have time for this shit. As your doctor, I can say with some certainty that you no longer have time not to deal with this, Morgan said, her voice still gentle but firm. These sorts of triggers don't just go away, darling. Not on their own. Sometimes not ever. Kate lifted her head, giving Morgan a stricken look. You're saying this will happen to me every time I hear gunfire? 
More than likely, yes. Kate's whole body crumpled. She fell over sideways, her head landing on Morgan's chest. Morgan wrapped both arms around her and held her close. Tears began streaming down both their faces. I'm so sorry, Kate, Morgan whispered. Kate said nothing for a long time, just sat there and quietly wept. She looked utterly spent, lost, beaten. It made John's chest physically hurt to watch it. Morgan just kept holding her, stroking her hair, offering the quiet comfort and strength that could only come through touch. John felt uncomfortably superfluous. This was a problem he couldn't help with. Not now, anyway. He quietly backed off, giving the two women their space, and went to check on the rest of their team. He headed in the direction Lizzie had gone, and soon found them in the last stairwell they had taken to come down here. Will and Callie sat side by side, holding hands. The college student looked dazed, overwhelmed, like he was experiencing his first drug high and didn't know how to deal with it. Callie hid a churning storm of suppressed emotions behind a mask of hard professionalism. The big sniper rifle leaned against the wall beside them, and Callie had a pistol in her free hand. Lizzie and Michael stood guard at the top and bottom of the stairs. They all looked expectantly at John as he approached. They're assuming I'm carrying a message from Kate, he realized. She's the one who got them all here. If Kate's out of action, why should any of them care what I say? So John did what he knew best. He used the truth to create a false impression. Kate's hurt, he said. She's awake, she's lucid, but she's not in any shape to fight. It's up to us to finish what she started. He looked around, gauging their reactions. Nods of assent from the two cops. Quiet determination from Callie. Good. John turned to Will. How much do you know about the ritual the cult is doing? It took Will a few seconds to focus on John, and a few more to find his voice. Uh, not much. Just that they needed Jared to do it, and if he dies, that means it failed. John nodded once. Which means that if it's still going on, he's not dead yet. He turned back to the rest of the team. Those death mana surges keep washing through here every minute or so. I'm guessing that means the ritual's still in progress. We need to find out where they are and shut them down. Callie glowered at him. We were short-handed before. How are we going to do this with Kate sidelined? We call in the cavalry. John turned to Elizabeth. Lizzie, who can we trust in MCPD? The leopard woman looked pensive. Well, there's Chief Montgomery, of course, but this is outside his jurisdiction. But the district attorney, Wendell Schubert, he's a family friend. I trust him with my life. You'll have to trust him with all our lives, John cautioned her. She nodded sharply. I do. All right. John thought fast, concealing his uncertainty behind a layer of outward calm. Don't let them see how much of this you're making up on the fly. Will, you're our witness for what happened down here. You'll need to give a statement to Schubert. Lizzie, you'll go with him. Make sure he gets heard. Get us that backup. 
Will's not going anywhere without me, Callie said flatly. We expected that, John said. He looked up at the top of the stairwell. Michael, Montgomery's your boss. Think you can get him on board? Michael set his jaw and nodded. Good. Call him. Let him know what's going on. Then make sure these three get to their meeting with Schubert. Can do, Michael said. What about the rest of you? Lizzie asked. Kate's not leaving until this is over, one way or another, John said. We'll work on tracking down where the cult is doing their ritual. Morgan and I will watch her back until help gets here. A noble sentiment, said a voice behind him. John spun on his heel and saw Murakir walking toward them, his hands behind his back. John glared at the mage. You're supposed to be watching the portal. Someone closed the portal from the other end. They sent this as a parting gift. He brought one hand out from behind his back, and John saw the severed head of one of the Daedra. It looked far too heavy for the little skunk morph to be carrying it so easily, but John supposed that being an earth mage had its advantages. Murakir held up the head in the light of Elizabeth's torch. John's hunting knife protruded from one of the eye sockets. The handle had been reduced to charcoal, but the steel blade was apparently unharmed. Murakir looked at John with something approximating respect. It takes a brave man to bring iron into fairy. Foolish, but brave. He gave John a shallow bow. Perhaps I misjudged you. Warily, John returned the bow. What's your plan now that the portal is closed? Will you stay here and help Kate? I shall, but not in the way you suppose. Even if your plan works, the police will not arrive in time to stop the Brotherhood's ritual. I must work to contain the damage. Elizabeth frowned. In what way? Murakir seemed to weigh how much to tell them. Callie answered first. He's going to cut off their link to the ley line. The mage looked at Callie in surprise. Yes, he said, sounding impressed. How did you know? I've been watching from my perch upstairs. Every time they send one of those pulses through the line, it gets shaky. They're trying to bust down a door to someplace else, wherever this god of theirs is locked up. Indeed, Murakir said gravely. They cannot release it, but they hope to open a channel between the entity and their vessel. What happens if they succeed? John asked. I do not know. They do not attempt this ritual often. Most vessels fail one of the earlier tests. Most, but not all, Elizabeth pressed. In the past, the mage said, I have killed their prospective vessels before the ritual could be completed. John glared at him. We're not killing Kate's psychologist. Why not? Murakir asked. He is complicit. He's a prisoner, John said. The two are not mutually exclusive. But this is academic. As I said, we will not reach him in time to stop the ritual. We must cut off their link to the nearby mana nodes. The fabric of reality has been weakened all along this ley line. I suspect that they have been attacking it for months. Michael spoke up. Is that why there have been so many ghost sightings here lately? The question seemed to catch Murakir off guard. Yes. Yes, that would fit. And the Lothanasi reported an increase in incursions here as well, Elizabeth pointed out. 
She turned to John. Remember the map? John nodded. There had been a lot of pushpins on this side of the valley. The Brotherhood has been preparing for this moment, Murakir said. If they complete their ritual and their connection to the ley line is intact, they will tear a hole in reality from Glen Avery to the Red Ford. Their god will reach into our world and imbue itself into the vessel. What happens then, I do not know. But this entity speaks to me in my dreams. I can sense its intentions. It harbors no love for this world or anything in it. We must not let it set foot in our reality. John studied the skunk morph carefully. His huge black eye was difficult to read, but John got the sense that he spoke with complete sincerity. He might be crazy, but he believed what he told them. And for the moment, at least, John was pretty sure they were on the same side. All right, we're not going to save the world by standing here talking about it. Let's get the ladies and move out. He turned to Callie, Elizabeth, and the rest of their team. Good luck, people. We're going to need it. And that's the end of Chapter 47. Come back next time when our heroes part ways and Kate receives an unexpected message. Ernest Hemingway said, We are all apprentices in a craft where no one ever becomes a master. So let's see how my apprenticeship is progressing. Here's your weekly writing report. Over the last two weeks, I wrote 4,685 words in eight hours, for an average writing speed of 586 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 231 days without breaking my chain. I've been spending most of my writing time working on the edits for Homecoming. Because Amazon is taking pre-orders for a June 1st release, I have to upload the final version by May 28th, so I'm pushing hard to get this finished before the deadline. I don't think I'm going to do pre-orders like this again, because it's honestly really stressful, but it's definitely keeping me motivated. I also spent a little time this week on a new science fiction short story, which I'm calling The Flower Garden. This is inspired by a character I'm playing in an upcoming role-playing campaign. I'm writing the story in order to get a better understanding of her backstory. I don't know if this will ever become something I can sell, but when it's done, I might put it up for my Patreon subscribers as a bonus feature. Speaking of Patreon, I'm about to release the next batch of audio commentaries, beginning with episode 178. If you haven't listened to my Behind the Episode podcast before, this is an unscripted show where I talk about the Easter eggs, background details, and writing process that went into each chapter of my fiction. Episodes are usually between 20 and 40 minutes in length, and they contain info that I don't share in any other medium. The show is available to all patrons at the $1 level or higher, and episodes are delivered in a customized RSS feed made just for you. If you join at the $3 level or higher, you also get access to other cool stuff, like sneak peeks, art previews, and cover reveals. Plus, all my patrons get exclusive bonus art from Metamore City artists like Ben Clifford and Carol Foote. If you want to start supporting what I do here, go to patreon.com slash author chris lester. 
Take a look at the membership tiers and choose the level that makes sense for you. Roughly 91% of what you donate goes directly to me, so that's the single most effective way to support me as a writer. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.